If you've got a Bible, please turn Acts chapter five. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the back table. You can turn to page 1011, wanna follow along. We have a lot of text to cover this morning, and so there's, it is impossible to get through every last bit. There's probably gonna be things that come up where you're like, well, what about this word, or what about this verse, or what's happening here? And we would just be here for hours. Um, so I wanna try and break this down in a way that's uh, manageable, but also um, gives us some, some call. Like, what, what does it look like? Like, how should this impact your life and my life? And so we'll kind of work through, through this passage section by section. Um, if you, again, another option too is to go to cpwp.life, swipe over, you'll see a card that says message notes. Things that are on the screen from passages, questions, quotes, things like that are there. It's space for you to be able to take notes and follow along. But Acts chapter 5, 12 to 42. And as we get into this, kind of here's where, where we're heading. You got to think about this, the context, right? And maybe you're coming in, this is one of your first Sundays. Let me just catch you up to speed a bit. This is the history of the, the birth of the church, that Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and, and the church is beginning to like burst forth, all right? And yet, what we have to see is there's this growing pressure, Maybe you felt that some of the, this past week. Some of you, maybe you're like sensitive to like, you know, as uh, maybe even as the storm was, was literally approaching like barometric pressures and you start to feel like, oh my goodness, my head feels like it's gonna explode. And like just sort of like this building, mounting pressure as a storm is, is coming. That's where we are in the book of Acts. Like there's been glorious, magnificent things and yet there's this rising opposition to the work of God, through the people of God, people that don't wanna see this work continue. And it's gonna result in increased persecution. And yet in that, there's this corresponding and greater like kind of demonstration of God flexing, of God doing his work, of saying, you can bring the opposition, you can bring the pain, all of that, but his purposes will prevail. Like very early on now, we are seeing Jesus' promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And that's a proactive, the church is not retreating from culture, sitting back because there's a big bad world out there. No, the church is proactively going out and saying, the gates of hell is not gonna withstand Jesus' church, taking new ground for the kingdom. That's what we're seeing happen, but there's pressure. And what we're gonna see here is how this pressure is mounting and increasing, all right? And so in this, though, we're gonna kind of have three things I wanna look at this morning is that there's this phrase that we'll see early on about this life. It's about this life that you and I can get on, in on now, uh, but it's gonna take us being connected to the leader, all right? We're gonna see that as we make our way through the text. So there's this life, this leader, and then there's this, really this invitation of what will our gospel legacy be? If we really understand this life that we're invited into and if we see rightly and truly who our leader is and how we can follow him, what would that result in? Not just for people a couple thousand years ago, that we praise God for that. But what about here and now and generations after us? What could it look like? And so let's start out by looking at this life that we're invited into. Um, and that's supposed to say chapter 5, 12 to 21. A little typo on my, my part. My apologies there. But Acts chapter 5, we'll pick it up in verse 12, and I'll read through 21. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats. Now get this, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. 
So there's some powerful things happening. Like, hey, I can't get near Peter, but maybe a shadow. Like, if I just kind of get right with this, like, wow, it's pretty unbelievable. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and here's this opposition. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. They put them in public in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and they began to teach. So I want to zero in for a moment. It's interesting. It should stand out, depending on what translation you have. But as I'm reading the ESV there, this life, and life is capitalized. Um, and if you look into that particular word that you get in verse 20 there, it's this word, this zoe. And what it is referring to is, it's what gets translated as life. But it's this signal. It's this way of saying, all right, like you need to go and you need to communicate about this life. But we're not just talking like biological function here, all right? There's another Another word that would be used for that, this bios, but what's being used here is this zoe, and it's this idea of like, what is animating you? Like, what is, what is driving your spiritual life, the true substance, true living? Because we all know this, right? Like, you can be alive and not really be alive. Like, you can have things functioning and working, but just feel this sense of like, something's not right. You don't have that zoe. You don't have that sort of animating presence of the spirit of God and so you feel depleted and you feel drained and there's this invitation here by the command of God like go and talk about this life this zoe to invite people into that so that more people would know and I believe it's capitalized here because at this point in the life of the church all right people are just trying to figure out like what do we call this thing right I'm not saying they're having a branding meeting, but if they were, they're probably sitting around like, I, I don't know, like is it, you know, so you hear things like the way, and I believe here it's called this life. It's this all-encompassing view of like something transformative has happened. Like we're in on something new here and the spirit of God is at work. And so it's just this kind of summary statement of like, you're invited into this life. And so what I want to do here as we look at these opening verses is just look at a few snapshots of what does this life actually look like? Not just for the people back then, but for you and me. And knowing some of the particulars are going to be different, right? Like my guess is you this week, you know, you weren't walking out and the sun was shining and it cast this shadow and then somebody happened to walk through your shadow and boom, like you healed somebody, right? Like come talk to me if that happened, that'd be amazing. But so there's some particulars that probably aren't going to be your reality or my reality, but it doesn't change the overall emphasis that we see here about this zoe, about this life that we're invited into. And so just look with me quickly at verses 12 to 16. I think the first snapshot we get of what does this life actually look like is that it's a group of people who are together on this mission, all right? And so, yes, some particulars are different, but there were signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So you have this idea of this unifying work of the people of God. They're together on this mission. And as you keep reading, do you notice? They see people, and it says from the surrounding town. So think about it this for a moment. 
it's not just when it's convenient and like, hey, you should go talk to this person. They're willing to go get their friends, family members, connections, acquaintances, whatever it is, that even live in the surrounding towns when travel is difficult and they are literally bringing their friends to say, you've got to hear about this way, this life. You've got to meet Jesus and you need to bring to him all that is tr- troubling you. And so for some, it's demonic oppression. For some, it's, it's sickness and disease. All right, there's all sorts of particular things that would cause somebody to be in need. But at the end of the day, notice this. It's the church gathered together and saying, we want to enter in. They are together on mission. And so right away, this first snapshot, like, if you want to know, like, are you and I in on this life, this Zoe, like, what might that actually look like? Is to ask yourself, like, how are you and I doing in regards to this togetherness on mission? And then to take it further and say, hey, who can you invite in? Like, who is a friend that you know that needs the life-transforming work of Jesus? And is there effort that's put in to say, hey, I got to get this person. Now, at the end of the day, you just can't drag them to church. I understand that. That's called kidnapping. We're anti that, right? But at the end of the day, what about inviting? What about praying for somebody, investing in them? Maybe they're a long way away from, you know, accepting your invitation to church, but they might come to your home. They might enjoy a meal with you or to get to know somebody in the office, whatever that looks like, but who can you Invite. And I think that's the first thing we see about this life, this char- like what characterizes the early church. I love these words, missionary Hudson Taylor, and he says this in regards to just this drive of seeing people come to know, and he's wrestling with the reality that, yes, it is true that there's a hardness of heart that exists, but look what he says. He says, perhaps if there were more of that intense distress for souls that leads to tears, we should more frequently see the results we desire. Sometimes it may be that while we are complaining of the hardness of the hearts of those we are seeking to benefit, the hardness of our own hearts and our feeble apprehension of the solemn reality of eternal things may be the true cause of our want of success. That's a hard word to hear, but I think it's right and it's true, and I should consider that. It's not just the hardness of the hearts out there, though that might be part of it, certainly. There is opposition, as we're going to see in this text, but I wonder about the hardness of my heart and of your heart and our feeble apprehension. Do we realize that so many people are disconnected from Zoe? They are disconnected from the life that they were created for, and it's why we see this beautiful picture of God sending an angel to rescue them and to say, now go and immediately go declare. Keep talking to people about this life. Don't give up and to persevere. But with that, the second snapshot we see here, look back with me at 17 to 18. We wish that this would just go amazingly well. And you would think that it would in some ways, right? Like people are being healed. Like who is going to be like opposed to that? Oh, this person they couldn't walk before, now they're walking. Oh, they had cancer, now they're, they're healed. Like, and yet there's a group of people that rise up. We need to examine that for a moment. Not just to critique them, but I need to have my own heart critiqued. My guess is you have to have your heart critiqued as well because there's this reality of things that we can hold on to. When our identity, when our sense of purpose and place in the world is being rocked, we tend to grab a hold of certain things like, I need this, I'm defined by this. And the scriptures are telling, no, 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 you're defined by the person and work of Jesus. 
And you have a group of people that have defined their life in one particular way. So look with me at 17 to 18. All, but the high priest rose up and all were, who were with him. That is the party of the Sadducees. And this is a group of people. This is one of the ways that confronts the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the miraculous. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in these sorts of things. And what do you have happening in 12 to 16 and throughout the opening chapters of Acts? Miracle after miracle after miracle, all tied to a resurrected king. So for them, this is mind-boggling. This doesn't fit their worldview at all. But it, and it leads, we we'll see it here in 17 to 18, we'll see it later in the chapter as well, like there's jealousy, there's fury, there's anger. This is not some sort of passing, like, oh, that person annoys me. This is, we want to stamp this out. We are furious. All that were with him, the party of the Sadducees, they're filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles. They put them in the public prison. Why? What is going on here? And here's the thing you and I have this beautiful opportunity to do some redemptively disruptive work. Not to make people upset. Like at the end of the day, listen, the gospel is going to be offensive enough. We don't have to go out of our way to be more offensive, right? So if you're like, hey, my spiritual gift is being a jerk for Jesus, that's not what the calling here is, all right? The gospel is offensive enough. We proclaim the gospel, and yet we seek to love people and care for people and to bring our friends and to see healing and to pray for them, all of those things. But know this, that there's opposition because something incredibly disruptive is happening. You have to put yourself in the shoes for a moment of these religious leaders. Their entire life and livelihood and who they were in the world was tied to the work in the temple and them being kind of the religious gatekeepers. And now these uneducated, these unschooled fishermen like Peter, like they're winning the day and it is making them upset. So think about it this way. All right, you might be here this morning and you think back like, I don't know, 10, 10 years or so, um, and uh, you hear that there's this new service that's coming out and it's called Netflix, all right? And you're like, oh, this sounds really interesting. I can order DVDs, all right, uh, to my house. And then they release this thing that's like, oh, forget about ordering that. You can just start streaming all of the content that you want. And you might be thinking, wow, this is pretty amazing. What an amazing time and place in which we live in. And you, that would be right and true and, and good, unless, of course, you owned one of these, right? Like, if you own, remember these? Blockbuster, right? I think there's like one left, and it's in Alaska, all right? Um, so you gotta go a long way to get there. The reality is an entire industry disrupted, right, by this new service, all right? And so, yes and amen, we like all of that, it's progress, but if you, if you own this for a moment, you're like, this is taking away my livelihood, had another encounter, not, this is going back maybe two, three years now, happened to have a gathering at, at my home, um, and somebody, we were talking about, like, somebody needed a ride from the airport, and somebody innocently just says, oh, hey, have you tried? You could call in, they could call an Uber, right? All right, sounds great. It was kind of newer on the scene. People were like, oh, what's that? Like, am I going to get kidnapped? What is this, right? And so, um, I've said kidnapped twice in the sermon, just for those of you keeping track, okay? Um, not in the notes. Anyway, um, and so somebody innocently offers that up. What they didn't know is that somebody in the room of which they were sharing a meal with worked for a local taxi company, right? When they said, oh, you can just get an Uber, those were fighting words, right? It's disrupting their livelihood. It was like, wait, no, like this thing, no, you don't do that. Calling some person randomly to come pick you up, like we've got this established thing. It's disruptive. Now, 
those are just kind of present day examples of an entire, entire industries being disruptive. And we as the church have an opportunity to do some redemptively beautiful disruption and yet it's going to bring opposition. So if you wanna know if this life, if you're living this life in the here and now, it's like, are you engaged in mission? And just know there's going to be opposition. Unless we get self-righteous and think, I can't believe these people are opposing. This is good and right and true. Just remember this. We are all opposed to things when it confronts us and we've built our identity in one particular way and now there's this reality. The, the, the good news of the gospel is also offensive because it says, you can't make it on your own. You killed Jesus. You should have died Instead of him, I should have died instead of him. Like everything, and then, and then in a culture that's very achievement oriented, like, hey, you're, you're dead, all right? So you can get your plans together and you're like, oh, well, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. Dead people can't do that. So you're entirely reliant upon the grace of God. That's incredibly disruptive. And our identity gets built on what we do and how we perform and what we achieve. And there's this message that we're called to of like, no, it's what Jesus has done. And you need to die to self and you need to embrace him. And so I can critique these religious leaders and the high priests and how dare they, but the, the reality of the matter is my heart is still there oftentimes. Thinking it's about what I do and what I achieve. But this life is beautifully disruptive. And Jesus tells us this. He says it's not gonna be easy, but you're blessed. Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Like that's what the blessed, you can translate this way, that's what the happy, joyful, good life looks like. Which I know none of us are like, oh, I wanna sign up for that. But he's telling you, like this is good. This is what this life is going to look like. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Don't think for a moment you're the only one that's encountered opposition. All right, you're part of this long lineage and history of people being opposed to the things of God, and there's this reward that awaits you, and you gotta focus on that. That's part of what this life looks like. Now drop down to verse 19. We see this continue. I think there's a third snapshot here of this liberation, these people experiencing freedom, this finding freedom, it says, so they get arrested. And then verse 19, it tells us, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. So I love this. I love the way N.C. Wright in his commentary in the book of Acts says this, but one of the things he says we find in Acts is there are no locked doors in the kingdom of God. There's opposition, there's guards, there's locked doors, and yet to God, it's like, really, that's all you've got? Like, God is big enough, strong enough, powerful enough, his will will be done. The gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. Now, you might look at that and be like, okay, well, that's this amazing miracle, but what about in your life and in my life? The reality is this. Like, we have all, apart from the work of Christ, like, we are enslaved. We are dead in sins and our trespasses. We are people that are stuck. We are in prison. We can't get out, and Jesus has come, and he's liberated you, and he's set you free. Now, he's got work for us to do, but it's not to earn anything. I love what, what we're going to see the, the next snapshot. The last one here is their obedience. But notice this. It's freedom first. It's liberation. And then it's here. Now, in light of what I've done, I want you to continue in this work. But the reality is so much of us, so much of the time, don't we feel stuck? 
Like, think about this, this image for a moment. This is a high jumper, okay? Um, you want to know, I've never done the high jump, but I've, I've had some friends that have, had, have done that, and you've, maybe you've watched it in the Olympics or whenever that, you know, those sorts of things are on, on TV. And one of the things that's interesting, right, think about it this way. I shoot a free throw in a basketball game. They don't say, okay, next one. They raise it up from 10 feet to 11 feet on the goal, right? I mean, what an interesting sport. Congratulations, you just cleared that bar. We're gonna raise it. Congratulations, you just cleared that. We're gonna raise it some more. They raise it to the point of failure, right? Like you can't go any more. Like that's how this progresses. And the reality is so much of us are enslaved to that sort of mindset because it's like, well, if I just achieve a little bit more and the culture and the world around you says, oh, that's great, congratulations. Let's just ratchet it up a little bit. And whether people communicate that or a boss is making you do that or hitting it, it's like, hey, you met your numbers. Apparently you can do more in the world, right? Like whatever that is, or you just internally, there's this voice in you that says, you can do more, you've got to prove. Maybe it's some voice from your past and your upbringing that says you've never measured up, you're not doing enough, but somewhere, somehow it's present and we're enslaved. And Jesus comes out, you don't have to live this way anymore. Like, he cleared the bar, he did it all, like, you get the medal, like, you, you get to stand on the podium as if you won the whole thing, all right? We get stuck, don't we? I know the reality for me is always this sort of proving. That's why Jesus opened up his ministry by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that may pertain to people that are physically stuck in prison and in jail, but it's also for you and me who are oppressed, who are enslaved by this pervasive belief system that says, I've got to prove, I've got to do it all. And then he sends them out the last snapshot here, 20 to 21, and says, be obedient. So go, verse 20, and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Can we just talk for a moment how remarkable this is? Hey, you've been in prison. What got you there? Well, talking about Jesus, talking about this life. Okay, gonna get you freed up, all right? Go do the exact same thing in the exact same spot. That's the call here, to not back away, to not shy away from this, to be obedient. Dallas Willard talks about this idea in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, and he's, he's referencing Jesus' difficult words at times, even as like, hey, how do we treat those who persecute us and those sorts of things. He says, you know, when you teach children or adults to ride a bicycle or swim, they actually do ride bikes or swim on appropriate occasions. You don't just teach them that they ought to ride bicycles or that it is good to ride bicycles or that they should be ashamed if they don't. Similarly, when you teach people to bless those who curse them, they actually do bless those who curse them, even family members. They recognize the occasion as it arises for what it is and respond from the heart of Jesus. There's this call here of like, through the enabling work, the power of the spirit, like there's this call to obedience. That doesn't earn you anything. If you think that that earns you God's affection and your spot at the table, you've got the high jump mentality again. Like, okay, well, you just got to keep clearing this and you will never be able to do it. But when you and I understand that Jesus is the one who's accomplished it all and you can get in on that, he's freed you, then you get to live in sort of this glad obedience. Oh, wow, I get to be part of it. I get to, I literally get the opportunity to tell other people about how they can get out of this. There might be opposition, Sure. Like it's promised here, it's seen. 
but there's this call to obedience. So let me ask you this. How does your life, how does my life compare to this life? This life that's talked about here in the scriptures. And just some of these snapshots. This is not an exhaustive list. We've seen different angles of this throughout the book of Acts. But do you have a life that's centered around Jesus and his mission and together with God's people, regardless of the opposition? Are you celebrating the freedom that you have in Christ? And so the reality is this, and this is what I'll press into as we look at the next section of scripture, that this life is directly tied. In fact, it can't happen unless we really are following the leader. Right? So we're gonna see that language used here in these upcoming verses, but this life can only happen, can happen because of the leader. If you're like, oh, who's the leader? Yeah, Jesus is the right answer here if you're wondering, right? But let's, let's look at how this gets talked about. 21 to 32, again, it's chapter five, not chapter four. All right, so um, Acts five, we'll pick it up in the back half of verse 21. It says this, so now when the high priest came, this is just a hilarious scene, by the way. All right, we don't have time to dive into all of this, but just remember this. The high priest right now thinks these guys are arrested, okay? Um, they're, they're in prison. So when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. So imagine this. You've got convening power. You're like, I'm the head guy. I'm calling this religious meeting. There's gonna be tons of people gathered. They all leave their homes or businesses or whatever they happen to be doing that day. And he calls them there because I'm gonna drag these prisoners in, all right? But obviously he's in for a rude awakening here. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they reported, returned and reported, well, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, this might be the understatement of the day, they were greatly perplexed about them. Like, wait, what? And now here he's got an entire room full of people waiting for these prisoners to be brought in and they can't find them. It's like, what is happening here? And wondering what this would come to. And then someone came and told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. They're not hiding. They're not like trying to scurry off to another town. They're not like, hey, we gotta get out, get out of here. They're like, let's go back to the exact same spot where we got in trouble in the first place. It's where they never would have thought to look, but that's where they are, right? Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they are afraid of being stoned by the people. Something's happening, something disruptive is happening. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. What a bold declaration. We must obey God rather than men. This is a man who understands the freedom that he has in Christ. He's got nothing to prove anymore. He's like, Jesus is amazing. Like, I'm gonna go with team Jesus, come what may. And the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So let's look at this for a moment. This leader that we're called to follow. Like you and I want to be about proclaiming this life and living this life and experiencing all that God has for us, the, 
this joy, even in difficult circumstances? Well, it comes back to like, who are you following? Who are you looking to? Who is your leader? This is our leader and our savior. That what Peter does is he begins to unpack for the people there, even though it's the very thing that has gotten him in trouble already up until this point. It's the thing that is actually gonna result one day in his death, his martyrdom, as it will for many, many people that we see in early church history. But there's this drive that he has of like, I've gotta proclaim about King Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And so what's interesting, if you do a little word study on this word leader, it shows up, this particular one, it's this archegos, it shows up four times in the scriptures. And every single time, it's a reference to Jesus. We'll look at a couple of them, two other ones, in, in just a moment. And it's, it's hard to, scholars will say it's hard to translate. Everything's hard for me to translate, but people that even would agree, you know, are like, hey, this is, this is difficult. Like, there's, there's, how do we actually kind of put this in the context? What actually, actually is it communicating? And so you see things like leader. That's one way to translate it. You'll see in the book of Hebrews, it'll talk of founder, all right? Um, sometimes in different translations, it'll say captain, all right? So founder, captain, originator, all of the, these things kind of get at the idea of this archegos, all right? That Jesus is the leader. He's the founder. He's the originator. He is the guy, right? He's the man. This is what it's driving at. But in the cultural time and place when this word was used, it also had kind of significant kind of cultural meaning as well because it was used regularly for those in kind of the Roman and Greek Hellenistic culture. It was a word that they would use, and it, it, to their minds, it would, it would bring up the, the idea of hero or superhero kind of idea, right? That they would talk, they, they believed in tons and tons of different gods, right? And so then you had all these competing so-called gods and the stories and Zeus and these Hercules and you have all these sorts of things. And so it would have been a regular word that they would have used to talk about this God or this character that has these sort of heroic like superpowers and strength, right? Like you just know this, right? I mean, this is just all over. I mean, these stories have continued down through the ages, right? Uh, we don't own very many movies as, as a family. We do own Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, and my two daughters have watched it like more times than I care to count. Um, I don't know if it's the storyline or if Spider-Man is cute. I'm not sure. Um, but um, their words, not mine. Okay, anyway. Um, I'm not sure what's driving that, but you watch, like, you could pick any number of them, right? If you're into some of these particular movies that just seem to be all over the place all the time, right? Um, it comes to a point where there's this ordinary person, and then they, somehow they're infused with this transformative, like, this superpower so in order to become that, that hero, right? Get bit by a weird spider, something happens, right? Like, that tends to be a storyline, and what's fascinating about the use of this, if we're going to live this life, is we have to look to Jesus as the leader. But what is so upside down in Jesus' kingdom is he didn't show up and suddenly get infused with a superpower, right? Like, no, he possesses all power. He didn't need that. What is fascinating and what is upside down and countercultural is instead of him holding on to his power, what makes Jesus truly heroic, truly the leader worth following, is that he gives up his power that he relinquishes his power, that he doesn't hold on to his rights, but rather he empties himself as we read throughout the scriptures. And so this is where this idea comes up, Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. 
Jesus doesn't need an extra dose of power. He's the one for whom and by whom all things exist. And bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, there's that word there, all right? He's the captain, he's the hero, he's the originator, he's the leader, he's numero uno, like he's the man. Make the founder of their salvation, what? Perfect through what? Through suffering. That Jesus willingly enters into our world and begins to relinquish his power. That he begins to pour himself out for the good of others that we see this happening over and over and over again. And then just a few chapters later in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, the word comes up again. Therefore, since we are surrounded, and this gets to how are you and I gonna live this life, is when we look to Jesus. Are you fixing your eyes on the captain? Are you fixing your eyes on the true hero? Are you fixing your eyes on the founder? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. There's the word. He's the founder. He's the true hero and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Isn't that what Peter was driving at here as he has this short little sermon that's a little shorter than what he's preached in previous sections of the book of Acts? But he gets up and he's just said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, he raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Anyone that was cursed was anyone that's hanged on a tree. He's like, but God raised him up. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and as savior. What? to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He's not saying you're dead in your trespasses forever because of what you've done. He's saying you too can receive forgiveness and you can be led into this repentance if you will simply confess that Jesus is the leader, Jesus is the hero, Jesus is the one who's poured himself out. He's the founder, he's the perfecter. And the way that you and I are gonna live this life it's not by looking at our circumstances. It's not by looking even to other people. When it says cloud of witnesses, it references some pretty amazing people in the scriptures. But all of them were broken and flawed and in need of Jesus. There's one hero. There's one captain. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. And it tells us, focus on him. He's the founder. He's the captain. He's the hero. He's the superhero. He is ultimate. And the way that he endured the cross was by what? said for the joy that was set before him. Does that mean he was lacking joy before he came here? No, no, no. The joy is directly tied to you and I being rescued and redeemed and brought into the family of God, restored to this life, the life that you and I were created for. That Jesus did it for the glory of the Father and also for your joy. That there was this thing out there that he knew, like, if I go through with this, and it's going to cost me everything, and I'm going to give up, I'm going to pour myself out for the good of other people and for the glory of the Father, there's a joy to be found because he knows that you're going to have your name written in the book of life. You're going to get in on this. You get to be part of this togetherness and this mission in this church. Like, that's part of what is driving him. And so be encouraged in that. So let me just ask you, and we'll wrap up here in a moment, like, where are you looking you and I cannot be faithful to this life and all that we're called to unless we're looking to Jesus. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, that he died the death that you and I deserve, but death couldn't keep him down. Death, Satan, the enemy, the opposition, like thought that they had won, thought the cross was gonna be the symbol of their victory, and instead it gets flipped, and now it's the symbol of the victory of God and God's people. As it resulted in an empty tomb three days later, it's just mind-boggling. 
Where are you looking? And to the extent that we look to Jesus, then here's where we'll wrap up. I think we have this opportunity to be part of this lineage or this legacy that goes all the way back. We can take our history and say, hey, you know what? Like our story is found here. Like maybe you've done one of these things over the years where you begin to look up your family tree or your, you know, your, your DNA and ancestry and all that stuff. It's fascinating, isn't it? And here we get to kind of trace back. Here's where the story began. Like here's how the church began and here's this legacy and we want to see that continue. And so I'll wrap up. Let me just read these last remaining verses, 33 to 32. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in high honor by all the people, he stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Then he said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, uh, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him and he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. It's very true words. He's like, just let it play out. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, and you might even be found opposing God. And you don't want to be in that spot. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They began to focus on the name. If we want to have this sort of legacy, I mean, you look back here, like here's this truth that's spoken by somebody who's not even a follower of Jesus and said, if this is of man, just, it, it'll play out. It'll fizzle out. It'll die. But there's a chance this might be from God. And the reality is the fact that you're here this morning proves that it was of God and that the story is continued and the gates of hell are being broken through and the church is advancing. And it might feel at times like, oh man, we're, we're losing ground or this or the darkness. Listen, at the end of the day, like Jesus is ruling and reigning. Jesus is gonna come back and set everything right. And right now he invites us to participate and to bear witness about the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus, that the name that transforms. And so they leave and it tells us they're praising and they're proclaiming. And their praising isn't because circumstances were amazing. It literally tells us they were beaten. This is what Jesus would have endured. Like, they got beaten up like Jesus got beaten up. It didn't end on a cross for them at this point. But they were flogged. They were whipped. This would have been in the traditional, like, they would have been flogged 39 times. This would have been whips with pieces of, of bone and rock and other things that as it pierced their, their back would rip chunks of flesh out as the people pulled it back like this is what's happening to them this is not just some sort of like oh like little spanking I mean this is like full on they were beat they were bloodied they are literally staggering out backs bleeding blood all over the place beaten up bruised all of this I gotta tell you about Jesus that's the picture here and they're praising like we've been counted worthy to suffer for the name 
How amazing is that? How in the world can we ever respond that way? It's only as we look to the leader, to Jesus, who's the true hero, that Jesus is the founder. And so I want to call us just as the worship team comes back up, I want to give us a moment to respond and reflect as we're trusting that the Holy Spirit is doing the Holy Spirit's job and, and work in this place. And I want to call you like, maybe what's come to mind to repent of? Like we all have different idols. Maybe it's fear that's keeping you. Maybe it's you've got real control issues. You don't want your life disrupted by Jesus. Well, Jesus, what if I gave you that? What if I gave you my time? What if I gave you control of my finances? It's incredibly disruptive. Maybe you're holding on to those things. That's idolatry. It needs to be repented of. But I also want you to rejoice in your leader. That Jesus is the one who has paid it all. Jesus is the one who gave you his perfect obedience. He's the one, because of his sacrifice, that the Father now looks at you. And if you are a follower of him, he sees the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus. And in all of this, too, we're not meant to do this on our own. And so maybe today is the day you go up and you say, hey, can you pray for me? There'll be leaders in the back corners. You see the signs that say, you need prayer. Why don't you seek somebody out this morning? Anytime throughout the remaining part of our service. So I want to pray. I want to give us just a moment to reflect, and then I'll call us back up and kind of give us some instruction about the rest of our time. But let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Jesus, that you are more than just an example for us to, to follow. Like, oh, we got to just be like our leader. That is an impossible task. So we thank you that we get your perfect obedience. We are going to stagger and stumble and mess up. But we do want to follow after you, Jesus, because you've set us free. You've invited us into the family that you pursued the cross, that you emptied yourself of everything for the joy of seeing us made right with our God, with our King. And so God, I pray that by the power of your spirit right now that you might lead us in repentance, that we would experience that even as a joy. Holy Spirit, you would bring things to mind that we can repent of, but that we wouldn't stop there, that we would rejoice in the fact that Jesus, that you've offered us forgiveness and grace and that you are the leader that we can follow and trust and that we would rejoice in those things. And God, I thank you that we are in this together as the church, empowered by the Spirit. So God, I pray that, that we would minister to one another, that we would seek out being ministered to. And so God, in these moments now, I just pray you would hear our prayers. And God, that you would, that you would lead us into just a joyful expression of worship to you as we continue. Hear our prayers now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.